everybody and welcome back to the Moving Pictures Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Holtzclaw, and today I have some updates and an announcement for you guys. So the update is just kind of about my life. I have started grad school at the Savannah College of Art and Design in Atlanta to get my master's in film and television. So I have had a lot less time to plan these podcasts than I thought, and I'm also working part-time with a nonprofit called The Noble, if you want to look into it. They they are really passionate about preventing and fighting sex trafficking and human trafficking globally, and so I'm really passionate about working with them, and you know, schoolwork is a lot already, so I just wanted to announce that I will now be posting a podcast episode every other Sunday. So Sunday is the day that I will put out these podcasts and it will be bi-weekly instead of weekly. So then I don't have to rush and make a bad podcast or not get it out at all. So that's the announcement. That's what we're going to do going forward. I'm really excited. I think this will be a really good process. So today I'm going to be doing something completely different. I will be talking about a documentary. I really wanted to, to talk about the Ted Bunny movie that just came out with Zac Efron called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. But to do so, I thought you guys should have the facts about Ted Bundy as a serial killer in real life from the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix, the documentary. So I thought the best way to do this was to give you guys a timeline of Ted Bundy's life kind of based on these tapes. So I I did look at a few outside sources that gave me some facts that might not have been in the tapes or that I suspected were in the tapes. So I have a few shocking facts as I call them. So I also wanted to talk about the movie and see how accurate it was and what they did put in, what what they didn't put in, and all the good stuff that we find when we analyze movies. So why I picked this uh, series is because I love the psychology behind criminals, which I'm, I feel like most girls my age do. It's kind of, you know, a stereotype that we love crime and all of the, you know, the Crime Junkie podcast, the Serial podcast, the Criminal Minds, the Law and Order, all of that. And it's really true. I find it so interesting how we can analyze serial killers and how we can analyze their minds and their motives behind everything. And I'm binging Criminal Minds right now. So that kind of spurred this this idea that I wanted to kind of dive into who Ted Bundy was specifically. And also what I found really fascinating is that when Ted Bundy was on trial multiple times, he went through what this type of serial killer would do and why he would commit these murders. But for a long time, he never admitted that it was him. He just talked about who this kind of person was or is and that it wasn't him, but he has an idea of why someone would do this or how someone would do this. And that gave a lot of insight into the authorities and reporters that he spoke with because it kind of gave them a personal insight into his mind, even though he wasn't admitting that it was, you know, his mind. And I thought that was really cool. And also, a really fun fact that I think all film and TV buffs love is that his trial in 1976 was the first criminal trial to be nationally televised. And so that's really big for TV history. That was a milestone. That was a really big movement towards filming crime and and reporting it and recording it and telling that story so I thought this would be the perfect example to kind of explain why we are so fascinated with serial killers so let's start with 
conversations with the serial killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Stephen Michaud, a self-journalist, interviewed Bundy while he was on death row and then made a documentary on it, and it's on Netflix. It's four episodes, it's really interesting, they're 60 minutes long, but I know a lot of people didn't finish the tapes or didn't like them because they thought it was kind of boring and tedious and just kind of went on too long. But I really loved it. I really loved the realism and actually getting to know the facts and and hearing these interviews. And I don't particularly love documentaries notoriously, but this one I felt was really interesting and really worth watching. I actually advise anyone who has seen the Zac Efron movie to watch the tapes before so you can get the full story and kind of understand who Ted Bundy was and why we talk about him so much and why there's, you know, four different shows on Netflix about him because these are the facts and this is who he was and and he was a serial killer. So just kind of to give you guys an intro, if you haven't heard of Ted Bundy, I don't know who hasn't, but if you don't know who he is, he was a notorious serial killer in the 60s and 70s. It's been about 30 years since he was executed, so he was put on death row and was killed. He murdered at least 28 women in his killing spree. But I read online that a lot of psychologists believe he probably killed more like 100 women that he didn't confess. And a lot of these psychologists thought that he kept those a secret so that he could just kind of play the game one last time and just kind of have a hold over these families who never got closure because he's a psychopath. So timeline, let's start from the very beginning. On November 24th, 1946, Theodore Bundy was born in Vermont He grew up with his grandparents and his mother. The identity of his father is still unknown. His mom claims that Ted's father was a sailor, but factually people haven't been able to confirm that and have also theorized that that's completely wrong. So we still don't know, and Ted never talked about his father. But what I thought was super interesting that we learned kind of a little bit later in the tapes is that he grew up thinking that his mother was his older sister. So he thought his grandparents were his biological parents and that his mother was his older sister, much older sister. And I mean, once he found out that that's not true, I can't even imagine the psychological trauma that that would do to a normal person, but to a serial killer, I can't imagine the impact that that had on his career as a serial killer, but you know, that's just my thoughts. So in 1950, he moved to Tacoma, Washington. His mom married Johnny Bundy, who legally adopted Ted a few years later. So the man that raised him was Johnny Bundy, and he took the, the last name as well as his mother. In 1961, there was the first disappearance of a woman who was thought to be by Ted Bundy. Anne Burr, a local woman in Bundy's neighborhood, went missing from her bed in the middle of the night, but this was never confirmed to be done by Bundy. He did know Burr and he did live close to her house, so it makes sense that this was his first disappearance. He was 14 years old. Psychologists say that's typically when these behaviors start. Also, I I know this just from general knowledge that typically a sign of a serial killer is bedwetting and uh, killing of animals. And so I didn't actually, they didn't mention if Ted Bundy did either of those things, but I think it'd be interesting to, to find out. So if any of you want to look it up, you can. I'll probably look it up after this. Because I wonder if they think that Ann Burr's disappearance was Ted Bundy because of those signs or because of something other than geographic location and association. But I guess we'll never know. 
So from 1965 to 1968, this was Ted Bundy's college years. He went to the University of Puget Sound after high school in 1965, and then he transferred to the University of Washington, but dropped out in 1968. He then spent one semester at Temple University once he moved, but again, he dropped out. So he was really on and off again with his education, but he was a psychology major, which makes sense and kind of, I think, is why he thought he could get away with talking about this infamous serial killer in third person. He thought he could kind of trick authorities or play with their minds in thinking he could explain it and say, oh, well, I'm just a psychology major. I can I can guess what this person would do or why he would do it. But either way, it's really creepy. So I don't, I don't like the thought of him having the educational background of psychology and knowing what he's doing to his victims and also knowing what the authorities would think or figure out or how they would go about it just based on the psychology of this killer that they could study. I just, it's just creepy. Anyway, so in 1969, he moved back to Washington and this is where he met his on and off again girlfriend, Elizabeth Kendall, who is the star of the movie with Zac Efron and Lily Collins. She plays Elizabeth Kendall. So they start dating. She has no idea who he is or what he's done. And in 1971, he actually got a job at Seattle Suicide Hotline. And it is said, well, I read online that this is where Bundy found some of his next victims in Washington because they called the hotline and he was able to see where they lived, which I know this was the 70s, but I feel like they should have vetted him better like he's dealing with suicidal people i i just think they should have maybe done like a short psychoanalysis on these people that are trying to deal with suicidal people calling a hotline asking for help hindsight's 2020 and in hindsight i feel like they definitely should have been a little bit more cautious about that so that's where he worked until he went back to school at the university of washington in 1972. so here he graduated in the same year, he graduated in 1972 with a psychology degree. So he had been working towards that, and once he got to the University of Washington and re-enrolled, it was super easy for him to just graduate with this degree. And then he decided that he wanted to be a lawyer, so he immediately went to the University of Puget Sound Law School. In 1974, this was the first known attack and murder done by Ted Bundy. In 1974, he broke into Karen Sparks' apartment at night and beat and raped her, but did not kill her. So Karen Sparks was his first known attack on a woman. She was in a coma for 10 days before she woke up, but unfortunately, she suffered permanent deficits and was not able to contribute in his trial or testify or point him out in a lineup or anything. In February of 1974, he beat and abducted Linda Ann Healy and they weren't sure what had happened to her on site on on location where he abducted her from but they did find her remains later at Taylor Mountain site in Washington so they know that she was killed at least and because of his previous attack we can assume other things but this was the first murder that was confirmed to be done by Ted Bundy. In mid-1974, he met Carol Ann Boone. If you at all follow the Ted Bundy story or know it at all, you know this name because she ends up being his wife and the mother of his one and only child. So she is definitely just as 
psychotic as he is. What I didn't know based on the movie, but I remembered from researching on the tapes, is that Ted dated both Liz Kendall and Carol Ann at the same time without either of them knowing about the other. And I completely forgot this, but he was dealing with both of them at the same time and they both thought that they were the only one he was dating. And Liz definitely didn't know about any of the murders, any of the claims, any of the crimes that he had committed. But with Carol Ann, it's kind of hard to say. She fell in love with a serial killer and married him later on when he was on trial. So you just, you never know. She could have known the whole time, but Liz definitely didn't know. So mid-1974, he then moved to Utah and then transferred to the University of Utah Law School. So all of these transfers were said to be because of the killings. He didn't want to be found out and he didn't want to be in one place for too long so that all of the missing women would kind of point to him or would get get back to him that they would the authorities would finally figure out that it was him so he moved around a lot so when he moved to utah this is when authorities noticed that women started disappearing all over where ted bundy was and this was a a massive influx of disappearances that the police hadn't really seen before and bear in mind this is the 60s and the 70s police in different states and counties had a really hard time communicating with one another and they didn't have the digital technology that we have now for them to send out apbs communicate share case files, call in other authorities from different jurisdictions. They didn't have that power because they didn't communicate so mo- so often and, and much. And they didn't suspect that someone in Utah would go to Washington and commit the same crimes. It just wasn't really um, common at this point. But the reason that authorities started looking at Bundy was after Melissa Smith disappeared in Utah. This was a big one and this is when police started saying, okay, we need to figure out who this person is because this is an obscene amount of disappearances. But they, the only one that they could link to Bundy eventually was Melissa Smith. On November 8th, 1974, Bundy had his first victim to escape his abduction. Her name was Carol Durange. This happened at a mall in Murray, Utah. He claimed to be Officer Roseland and approached her while she was shopping in the mall and said that someone was trying to break into her car in the parking lot and that she should follow him outside to see if anything was stolen from her car. She hesitated at first. She didn't see a badge. He didn't look official, but I mean, he was saying that he was a police officer and he was trying to help. So eventually she ended up following him. And once she was at the car, he attacked her and put her into his car, his bug. If you know, that's that's the car he drove, his yellow bug. And he was trying to abduct her and take her to another location. But when he tried to cuff her, he messed up and he put two cuffs on one hand. So she was able to grab a crowbar from his car underneath the seat and escape. What's crazy about the story is that they actually did leave the parking lot before she was able to attack him and escape. And the only reason that she was able to get away and that he didn't chase after her was because there was an oncoming car coming towards them. And Carol was running once she got out of Ted Bundy's car to this other car and saying, help, help, take me to the police station. So immediately she reported him and she was able to identify him with perfect clarity. So the rest of 1974, we know that he committed seven more murders throughout Washington and Colorado. He confessed to seven 
we know this, when he was on death row, he confessed to seven, but there could have been and most likely were more. Also, really fun fact, in the end, when he was confessing all of his murders, he confessed that the real first victim in Utah was Nancy Wilcox that was two weeks prior to Melissa Smith. So if he had not confessed, the authorities wouldn't have ever thought to look into Nancy Wilcox's case and they would have thought that Melissa Smith was the first disappearance and murder that he had committed in Utah, but it wasn't. In December of 1974, Liz reported Bundy for the third time saying that she knew the man that they were looking for. Now, I really thought she only called one time. Maybe that's because I've seen the movie more times than I've seen the tapes, but I thought she reported him one time and never again. But the tapes reaffirmed that after Liz saw the profile of the killer, she reported Bundy in August, November, and December of 1974. So I'm assuming the reason she didn't report him again is because it finally stuck in December and the authorities were able to kind of trust her and, and had a, a bigger case against him. But in August 1975, this was Bundy's first arrest. He was pulled over in Utah for speeding, simple traffic violation, and he, of course, tried to charm the police officer, and apparently he was the most charming and um, engaging human being possible. And so when he got pulled over for speeding, then the police found suspicious items in the back of his car, a ski mask and handcuffs, so he was arrested. But they had no reason to hold him, so they had to let him go. They didn't have any evidence until September 1975 when Carol DeRanche identified him in a lineup and said that that was the man that had attempted to abduct her. Also, a fun fact that I completely forgot, Bundy had sold his car before his arrest based on Carol DeRanche's identification. So after he was pulled over in the car but let go, he sold his car. And once Carol DeRanche had identified him in a lineup and he was arrested, the police seized his car from the new buyer and found multiple women's hair in his car. So he attempted to get rid of the evidence, but the police still found it and put him in jail for attempted kidnapping and also had the suspicion that this was what he did, that this, this was a pattern. He had done this multiple times. He made bail on October 1975, but in February 1976, his trial for kidnapping started. He was found guilty. He was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in Utah State Prison. He was also charged with the murder of Karen Campbell from Colorado while in prison in Utah. And this is why he was transferred to Aspen Prison in Colorado. So... While he was in Utah State Prison, the authorities finally started talking and seeing where Ted Bundy had been and discovered that he had also committed other murders in different states, which is why he was charged with the murder of Karen Campbell. In June of 1977, Bundy escaped jail for the first time. So for his trial for the murder of Karen Campbell, he was serving as his own attorney based on the fact that he went to law school for a time. So this, from my perspective, this was kind of his way of trying to act like a normal human being and say, I couldn't have possibly done this. Like, look how mentally stable I am. I'm, I'm my own lawyer. I know what I'm talking about. I'm going to win this case, essentially. And I think that was him just trying to hide who he was, really. But because he was his own lawyer, he was granted library privileges to prep for the case. 
Fun fact, Ted Bundy had scoped out the courthouse and the window that he could jump from. It was on the second floor of the courthouse. And he had practiced this jump by jumping off the top bunk in his cell repeatedly until he could get the land correctly. So during a trial recess, he went into the library, said he needed to prep. He hid behind a bookshelf. He climbed out the window and jumped out of the two-story building. He broke his ankle on the fall, but that didn't stop him from literally running miles into the mountains. After he had hid in the woods for six days, he apparently was so delirious from lack of food and water that when he went into town for supplies, he was careless, and he was arrested again while police officers caught him breaking into a camping trailer, and he was also caught stealing a car, so he went back to jail, of course. And so, about six months later, in December of 1977, Bundy escapes jail again. Now, mind you, this was in the 70s when police and prison security was not at maximum level that it is today. So I guess for the time it would be understandable that he would be able to outsmart them and escape, and and today that wouldn't make any sense. That wouldn't even be possible. But the second time, he cut a hole in the ceiling of his cell and escaped through it. He changed clothes and walked right out the front door, and no one realized he was gone until the next day. So the only justification for this is that jail security really sucked back then and that it really wasn't high-tech and good, I would say. If a serial killer escaped twice, I wouldn't say that the security was very good, but, you know, my opinion. So after the second escape, he fled to Florida, and this was a long trek for him, but he was determined to get there. He hitchhiked to Denver. He flew to Chicago. He took a train to Ann Arbor, he stole a car to Atlanta, and took a bus to Tallahassee. So he ended up in Tallahassee and he stayed there. He actually couldn't get a job, he found it really hard, and so he basically just started killing again, and that was his full-time career. So in January of 1978, there was mass Chi Omega sorority house murders. I think he's most known for these because it was so gruesome, and it was in a sorority house, and I think speaking from... uh, a former sorority girl in college. I'm hoping that our security would have been a lot better than this, but I think that this is just memorable because it was so out in the open and he still managed to escape and no one in the house could identify him. But he snuck into the house in the middle of the night, which is his typical MO. He killed two women, he attacked two others, and then the next day, He killed another girl, but this time she was a 12-year-old girl, and she went missing in the middle of the school day. So he lured her somehow out of her school and abducted her and killed her. Now, a shocking fact I did learn about these attacks were that all of the women were raped with foreign objects. So one, I believe, was a curling iron. One was a baseball bat or some wooden pole, which... I don't even think needs to be said how absolutely horrendous and disgusting that is. It's shocking to me that no one woke up and was able to see him, stop him, identify, call the police, anything. I just am so shocked that he was able to pull these off. And I think he really got off on the fact that he committed these crimes and was able to get away with it. However, this is karma, or destiny, or God, or honestly all of the things. On February 2nd of 1978, 
Bundy flees from Tallahassee and gets caught. He got caught in a stolen car and was arrested again as he was a wanted man. So in June of 1979, Bundy's trial for Tallahassee, Florida murders take place. Again, this was the first ever trial to be nationally televised, which is a big milestone in the history of television, but it's also really eerie to me to see him in these tapes in the courtroom smiling at these cameras, smiling at these reporters. It's so creepy just watching his face knowing what he's done knowing why he's there and the fact that he is just smiling and posing for these reporters like they're paparazzi and he's a celebrity it's it's honestly disturbing and also what else was disturbing is how many young women went to his trial and didn't think that he was guilty because he was attractive and charming and and all of these good things but it, it was just shocking to me that young women, the same age as these women that he had killed, good thing they weren't on the jury because he was found guilty on two counts of murder, three counts of attempted murder in the first degree, and two counts of burglary. And this is when he was sentenced to death. In February 1980, however, he had a second trial for a murder in Lake City, Florida. This is actually when Bundy married Carol Ann in court when she was on the witness stand. So she was testifying that he couldn't have possibly done this. And back then, there was a law in Florida that verbal commitment for marriage in front of a judge meant it was a legal marriage. So on February 9th of 1980, Ted Bundy and Carol Ann Boone were married. This is just a whole nother level of creepy. Like, I, I don't even need to go into it. On February 10th of 1980, Bundy was sentenced to death again. And this time... It was for the murder and kidnapping of Kimberly Leach, which was the 12-year-old girl. In 1982, Ted Bundy's daughter was born. His daughter had been conceived during a conjugal visit that Carol Ann took to see Ted nine months earlier. Apparently, they had paid a guard to keep the visiting room empty while they had sex. And fun fact, apparently, after this, but before his death, Carol Ann and Bundy had a falling out, so Carol Ann refused to talk to him on the morning of his death. So something had happened after their daughter was born to cause this, but Carol Ann has never spoken about it. And, <laughs> oh, Ted. In 1984, Ted tried to escape jail again by sawing through the window bars of his cell with the use of broken mirror pieces. But he was stopped because a guard spotted the mirrors and broken bars before he had the chance to escape. So he was relocated to a more protective jail in Ralford, Florida, and this is when he confessed. He was on death row, and from the years of 1984 to 1989, he finally spoke with authorities and reporters to confess all of his murders. He confirmed the murders that he was charged for, as well as confessed to many more. And the reporter, Stephen, that interviewed him, he said that Ted boasted in his murders while taking credit for the ones that he was accused of while confessing. So this man, this psychopath, was so proud of what he had done that he was boasting in it and was proud and wanted to literally tell everyone all of the disgusting, horrific things that he did. So, on January 24th, 1989, Ted Bundy died. At 7.16 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, he was put in the electric chair. He was 42 years old, and he died in the Florida State Prison in Ralford, Florida. So he did die for these murders, but there are some families that will still never know what happened to their loved ones 
because of Ted Bundy and some remains will never be found but Bundy is a fascinating person to study and learn in my opinion what evil looks like so shocking or just strange and cool facts I found online according to express.com he may have had a victim type based on women who looked like his ex Elizabeth Kendall Like I mentioned many times when he raped the women, he would use objects found in this woman's room or weapons that he would bring, which is, oh, horrific. All of this is horrific. And that's just, that makes my insides hurt. He was also a necrophile. Yes, it keeps getting better. He would revisit past bodies and have sex with them again. And he would photograph many corpses. It was also reported that he kept a few of his victims' heads and body parts but honestly I have no idea where I really didn't want to research this I really don't want to know where he kept them because that's disgusting but yeah shocking facts he was a disgusting human being not only would he attack kidnap traumatize and murder these women but he would do really gross things afterwards so yeah oh this is actually I think a really cool fact so once he was caught in jail and once he had um, confessed he helped catch the Green River Killer while he was in jail so Gary Ridgway is known as the Green River Killer and he was convicted of a total of 49 murders in Washington during the 80s and 90s and he is the second most prolific serial killer in US history so Ted Bundy apparently used the same tactic that he used on, I guess, himself before he confessed, where he would say, this is the psychology behind it, and this is what he's going to do, this is what he's going to do next, this is what he did do, this is what you should go look for, etc. Apparently, he spoke with authorities based on what he thought the Green River Killer would do and where he would go, and that's how Gary Ridgway was caught. This story of a serial killer helping the police find another serial killer would go on to inspire the 1991 movie, The Silence of the Lambs, which I'm sure you all have heard of. So that is actually a cool fact. I think that that's something I never would have thought about and never would have remembered about Ted Bundy, honestly, or or I guess known about him unless I had watched these tapes, which is, again, why I recommend you watch the tapes before watching the Zac Efron movie because it doesn't give you the full picture. That's kind of my segue into talking about the movie. Again, it's called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. The title comes from Judge Edward Coward's remarks on Bundy's murders while sentencing him to death. And this is a direct quote. He said, The court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity, I think, as I've experienced in this courtroom. You are a bright young man. You'd have made a great lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me, but you in another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity towards you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. Wow, I got goosebumps. This judge was literally complimenting Ted Bundy as he was sentencing him to death because he seemed so normal and he was smart and he was manipulative but he could have used that for good aka in a courtroom to help people and instead he went completely the other way 
and cause so much pain just for the sake of causing pain. And that's where the title comes from. So the director is Joe Berlinger. The screenplay is by Michael Werwe. And the cinematographer is Brandon Trost, which I really want to talk about Brandon Trost's work because I loved that the most out of the movie. And since I've given you guys a full picture of who Ted Bundy is, then I don't want to repeat myself. And so I want to talk about how they produced this character. The cast, Zac Efron played Ted Bundy, Lily Collins played Elizabeth Kendall, Kaya Scoldelario played Carol Ann Boone, and John Malkovich played Judge Edward Coward. So this movie was actually based on Ted Bundy's former girlfriend's memoir, The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy, by Elizabeth Kendall. So this movie was based on Elizabeth Kendall's experience and her perspective on the story, which makes a lot of sense because it's basically a biopic of her living her life, meeting Ted Bundy, and then dealing with the fallout. And it's really hard to watch in the movie. She becomes drunk and she um, cries all the time and she can't take care of her daughter as well. And she can't let go of Ted Bundy. And she also feels really guilty for, for reporting him and calling the authorities and saying Bundy is the one you're looking for which I didn't gather from the tapes considering she, in real life, reported him three times. And in the movie, she only did it once and felt really guilty about it the rest of the movie. But this movie had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival on January 26th of 2019. It was released in the U.S. on May 3rd, 2019 by Netflix, and it grossed a total of $9.8 million. So I want to bring up the ratings. It got a 54% critic score and a 57% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And... I really want to know what rating you would, I really want to know what rating you would give this movie. I loved it. So I would probably give it, I don't know, 75, 80%. I was just upset that it didn't follow as much about Ted Bundy and like give the facts. I thought that it just left out so many important parts of who Ted Bundy was that I just was just a little disappointed. But anyway, so the director actually said that the main idea of this the main message from this film is that devils may come disguised as angels and I think that perfectly sums up why everyone thought Ted couldn't have possibly done this and why all those women were fawning after him and fangirling over him when he was literally on trial for multiple murders and kidnappings and and attacks and they thought that he couldn't have possibly done it because he was you know xyz and I think that, that this movie really portrays that. I mean, using Zac Efron as, like, this serial killer, I thought was a great role for him because it's so different. But I also thought that it was perfect because you could see how charming and attractive he was in more of a modern perspective. Because personally, I don't think Ted Bundy was attractive looking at old pictures of him. But Zac Efron is, like, our hottie of, of modern time. So I think that it kind of fit well. And it kind of helped some people understand why why so many women and people didn't think that he could have done this or or were just doubtful. My cinematic thoughts on this movie is that I loved all of the angles. Like I got such a good indie film feel from it because generally speaking, most of the angles were close-ups. You could really have insight into what the characters were thinking and feeling. Or there were wide shots where you could get the whole picture and kind of be in the room. And I really like that kind of feel where it feels like the camera's moving with you. It feels like the camera is your POV, your point of view, your eyes. 
And I think that that really helps me get into the story and feel like I'm actually there. And like I said, I want to talk about Brandon Tross, the cinematographer. Fun fact, his great uncle was actor Victor French, who played Isaiah on Little House of the Prairie, which was so cool when I was researching just to associate all these different actors and cinematographers. It was just, it was cool. He said that he wanted to elevate the production value of this period film as much as possible. So he didn't want it to be the the grainy 70s look. He wanted it to be modern, but show the 70s in more of a modern way, which I thought was really interesting. I think that makes it more relatable to modern audiences. And I mean, not to mention just the quality of the movie was so crisp and clear and you could see every little detail of costume and prop and set and emotion and acting and it was just so it was such a good production I think all together generally the production value of this movie is it's great. Tross did say that it was shot handheld because they wanted a more intimate feel for each scenario which is basically what I thought about the movie is that the camera moving with you made it more personal and more relatable and more intense. And that's basically what Tross said he did and what he wanted to do. He said he was able to follow the actors with the handheld so much easier that he said he felt like a fly on the wall. And again, that's how I felt watching. He did his job, (laughs) in my opinion, because I felt the exact way that the cinematographer wanted me to feel. And I think that means that the movie was a success and that Tross was a success and he... He did his job so well, and and I I really loved loved all of the cinematography part, which is why I just wanted to bring up Trost. So lastly, I just want to talk about the differences between the tapes versus the movie. There's not a lot, but these are just kind of things that kind of bugged me when I watched the movie because it was so different from what I had heard in the tapes. Again, like I said, the movie was more of a biopic for Liz rather than explaining who Bundy was, and that just bothered me because I love the facts and the psychology behind it and although I think that this was a really 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 good movie and it really showed how much effect Ted Bundy had on these women and on these people and on the world because of his actions just because I'm more interested in the psychology of the serial killer I think I would have preferred to see more of that but this movie was based off of Liz's memoir so it makes total sense that it would be more focused on her oh just a little random thing I didn't think the movie had him dating both Liz and Carol Ann at the same time they had that scene together Liz and Carol Ann where Liz and Ted are getting a dog and Ted runs into Carol Ann and she says Ted oh my gosh and he says Liz you know this is Carol Ann I met her in Washington and you know this is my girlfriend Liz here's Carol blah 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 But I think that was the movie alluding to how he was dating both of them. Or maybe after this, he was dating both of them. That kind of thing. But I didn't really put that together. So I just thought it was interesting that he's also a cheater. Oh, they also added in that Bundy and Liz got a dog. I don't know if that really happened, but it wasn't mentioned in the tapes. And maybe that's just because it wasn't important. But it was kind of an iconic scene in the movie because the director wanted that scene so badly in the movie because he wanted the message that because Ted was so charming... An animal was the only thing on earth that could see the evil that was within him. So basically, you know, everyone else was blind to it except this animal could literally smell the evil in his soul. And he was the only thing on this earth that knew it, that knew he was evil, and no one else could see it. And so I thought that, like, portrayed the message really clearly and in a cool way. The movie never mentions that Bundy kept remains of some of his victims' bodies or that he went back and revisited them or took pictures. But definitely didn't mention that he was a necrophile, 
But in the end, spoiler alert ahead, if you haven't seen the movie, stop now and go watch it. In the end of the movie, when Liz comes back right before his death and says, what did you do to that last girl? What did you do? He said he used a chainsaw to dismember her. Which honestly gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because it was such an intense and scary and wild ending. I was not expecting it when I, you know, was watching the movie for the first time and I thought that was cool. But they said that basically he would piece up these women with a chainsaw, but the tapes didn't really talk about that. And the movie didn't really talk about his sexual behaviors as much as the tapes. So honestly, you get the information. I think most of this information almost... All of this information is true. It just depends on whose perspective you're looking from, uh, Liz's or Bundy or an outside reporter. So all in all, you can take this information for what you will. But one of uh, the most notorious serial killers, that was Ted Bundy. Yeah, now I feel like I need to go watch some Criminal Minds or something and like learn more about these serial killers or listen to the Crime Junkie podcast because it's so good. This is not an ad, but you know, you guys should go watch and listen to those they're so good and if you have any other recommendations for podcasts tv shows documentaries movies that are um, about crime or serial killers or the psychology behind it please leave me recommendations there's a form on my website underneath this episode that you can enter that information into or ask me comments questions or concerns if you have them thank you guys so much for listening and you guys will not hear from me next sunday but the sunday after that this was really fun this was very therapeutic for me to think about all this psychology behind it so thank you guys and i will see you guys soon bye now if you run Could she love? Could she woo? Could she?